Okay, Grove, we're glad you're here. It's a crazy day. And uh, we know that lots of people are uh, in limbo right now about what they're thinking and what they're feeling. But here's what I know. God is good. He's on the throne and we can trust him. So that's what we're going to do. We're in the book of James and um, we're moving down towards the end of the chapter. And as we get down to verse 13, following it into chapter 5, uh, we're picking up where we left off last week. And last week, we, as we moved into chapter 4, we were talking about a word that most people really are just not all that fond of, and that would be the word submit. Come on, say it with me. <laughs> submit. The, the reason we're not so fond, well, the word speaks of being under the authority of someone else. And what you need to know is it's not a passive decision. It's a personal determination to set yourself under the authority of someone else. And, and truthfully, most Americans don't like that. We value the individual. We have personal rights. That flag that used to fly, don't tread on me. You are not the boss of me. But the truth is that in the Bible, we're called to a very different standard. And that's a place of submission. When it comes to submission, probably the first biblical passage that runs through most of our minds is Ephesians 5.22. And a whole, whole lot of women would just as soon throw the words of Ephesians 5 right out of the Bible. And in case you're wondering what I'm talking about, well, here, here they are. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. The words, the words here are not a suggestion. They're an expectation. Wives, you are to make the decision, the conscious decision to place yourself under the authority of your husbands. You choose to let them rank over you, submit to their leadership. And the way Paul appeals to wives is through their relationship to the Lord. Submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. As you submit to the Lord, as you rank under his leadership, so you should rank under the authority of your husband. The point is that submission begins with your relationship with God. Now, truth be told, a lot of people don't like that. And honestly, as a pastor, I'm just telling you, this is one of those passages that I, that I see people trying to, to back away from. Pastors want to avoid it. They don't, they don't want to talk about this. They don't want to mention it. There's a, there's a fear that if we put these words up on a screen someplace or have people read it along, that the women of the church are going to grab the pastor after church, take him out back, throw him into the pond, maybe tar and feather him. I, I've heard all kinds of pastors over the years try to explain this away. Oh, it was written in a very different day and age. I mean, back 2,000 years ago, things were very different. It was a patriarchal society and, and, and women were dominated. Things are very, 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 very different today. We, we see the value in all people. The Bible needs to evolve. I mean, I've heard all of this stuff. Well, friends, I, I'm just telling you, the Bible doesn't need to evolve. Here's the truth. The Bible sees value in all people. Would you agree with that? All people. Jesus didn't think less of women. In fact, if you read through the ministry of Jesus, some of the, some of the closest people in Jesus' inner circle were females. His first post-resurrection appearances was not to men, not to the disciples. It was to females, to women. The apostle Paul certainly didn't think less of women. And Paul made it clear that God doesn't think less of women either. Galatians chapter 6 Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 says, you are all sons. And when you, when you read the word sons here, don't, don't, 
don't read that gals are supposed to become men. This is just like a generic statement. It's like, it's like a brotherhood of believers. We, we are all in the family of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's not, there's not Greek or slave. There's not Jew or Greek. There's not slave or free. There, there's not female or male. No, we are all one in Jesus Christ. We're all, we're all equal in God's eyes, but while we are all equal in God's eyes, that doesn't mean that we're all equal in our makeup. Male, female, we're vastly different. There are things that females can do that, that males can't do. There are things that males can do that females can't do. Your, your gifts are different than mine. Mine are different from yours. We, that doesn't make us more or less value, valuable. It just make, makes us different. But in, in that diversity, we all have equal value in God's sight. And in our differences, God has put some in charge and some others. God, God chose. Now, why he chose, I don't know, but it makes sense because if everybody was in charge, then there would be nothing but chaos that was floating around us. So here's the point. In a relationship, somebody needs to be the head. Somebody needs to be the lead. And God, for whatever reason, chose that males would be in that position. God chose to create a hierarchy in which relationships would function and which is necessary in, in all relationships. But that hierarchy does not connote value. Now, the reality is that this command isn't just for wives. The truth is this command to submit really goes out to everybody. So listen up, husbands, if you think you're off the hook. In the, in the very preceding verse to Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit to your husbands as unto the Lord, we, we find these words in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, your job as a Christian is to live in submission to God and to others. You're not free to run amok here. And then, husbands, Paul goes on. As you take on the role of leader in your home, your task looks like this. Ephesians chapter 5, down a, verse, down a few verses to verse 26. Husbands, love your wives. Love your wife just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. The, the, the role of the husband in the marriage relationship is not to lord it over his wife. The, 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 the role of the husband in a, in a marriage relationship is to take responsibility to lift her up to serve her, to bless her, to help her, to support her, to encourage her. And we take our marching orders here from Jesus, who, by the way, loved the church. And the way that he showed that he loved the church is that he died for the church. Husbands, God is calling you to that kind of, to that kind of response to your wife, to not lord over, but to serve under. Wives, you're to submit to your husband's leadership, and husbands, your leadership is to be about first following the Lord and submitting to Him, and then serving your wife by literally presenting yourself as her servant. Now, I'd like to suggest that a husband who loved his wife to that degree would probably be easy to submit to. 
When the role of leadership becomes one of service, I'm just telling you that, that is, that's what love is really all about. Not my needs first, but your needs first. And husbands, when you make it your goal to serve your wife so she can be fulfilled in her life, fulfilled in her walk with Christ, fulfilled in her life, I, I'm just saying you will easily find a woman who will be willing to submit. So what's the point? The point is this command isn't for wives. The, the, the truth is this command is for all of us. We are all called to live in a submissive role, ultimately to Christ, carrying over into our marriage relationships, even here in the church. The goal of our lives should not be to allow ourselves to take over and be in charge above everything. The goal of our lives should be to allow submission to reign, that everything we do would ultimately flow under the authority of Christ and how we choose to act and live and respond to one another. Now, honestly, when you talk like this, it brings about a lot of confusion in Christian circles. See, a lot of Christians have been taught that the, that the role of Jesus in our lives is to bring blessing. We, we think Jesus' job is not to be our Lord. Jesus' job is to be our blessing giver, and a whole lot of Christians live to this end. And they look at Scripture, and they point to it, and they say, see? So one of the passages they'll point to is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. Here, here's what Paul says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Now we're good at claiming this promise, all the, all the blessings that are poured into us, grace, salvation, eternal life, free gift, nothing you can do to earn it, it's just given to you. We, 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 we read that and, and we shout hallelujah, Lord, thank you for that, and, and what, what else do you have to do for me? Well, the problem is that we've stopped short in the verse. So let's read it again, but let's go a little bit further. Paul says, it's by grace you have been saved through faith. This not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Then on to verse 10, it says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is the call of the Bible. This is it right here. Every time you read about the promise of blessing, you also hear the call to responsibility. Now you think about that. In the book of Deuteronomy, the children of Israel were getting ready to enter into the promised land. For 40 years, they've been wandering in the wilderness. The reason? Well, they, they, they had been unfaithful to God. Forty years earlier, in Numbers 13 and 14, we read about this, the 12 spies went out to see the land. God wanted to encourage them with all that was going to come to them. And when they got to the land, the spies came back with the report and said, yeah, it's everything God said, except he left out a few things, like the giants and the fortified cities. If we go in there, we're going to die. They're going to squash us. We, we look like nothing but little grasshoppers in their sight. And so they refused to submit to the will and the, the, will and the work of God. And they chose to go back into the wilderness. And so God took that generation to the wilderness for 40 years. The spies were in land for 40 days. One, one year for every day, you will march in the wilderness. And everybody over the age of 20 is going to die in the wilderness. A new generation is going to rise up. The rebellious generation's children and their grandkids. And, and the call from Moses to this new generation of Israelites was to be responsible to God. In fact, Moses says that the continued blessing of the promised land would literally hinge on this whole idea 
of living faithfully after God's decree. Here's what, right before he died, Moses said this in the book of Deuteronomy. Verse, chapter 8, verse 19, if you forget the Lord your God, follow the other gods and worship and bow down to them, I testify against you today that you will surely be destroyed like the nations the Lord destroyed before you. So you will be destroyed for not obeying the Lord your God. These two concepts, friends, are firmly tied together throughout the Bible. Blessing follows obedience. Blessing follows obedience. I want you to say that with me. Blessing follows obedience. Let's say it again. Blessing follows obedience. If you want God's blessing, then you must submit to Him. You must obey Him. It's not obedience first. It's not, obe- it's not, it's not that obedience will, will, will follow once God blesses me. It's obedience first, then blessing. And by nature, if this is the truth, then this other statement is true too, that obedience demands submission. So when the children of Israel entered the promised land, Moses gave them the directive in the book of Deuteronomy, and then Moses died. Joshua took over the leadership of the children of Israel. The question is, how did they do? Well, the answer is not so well. In fact, from that moment forward, from the, about the moment they stepped into the promised land, they were pretty quick to remember the blessing in their relationship to God, but they forgot their responsibility to submit to God's commands. And it all had painful consequences. Now, in your, in your, in your uh, notes, I've, I've listed a couple of passages here in, out of 2 Kings 21 and out of the book of Haggai chapter, chapter 1. And I, I hope that you'll go home this week and that you'll, that you'll read these. Because it's talking about where the Israelites got to the point where, where they, they had forsaken the Lord and were serving other gods and doing all kinds of horrible things and God took them into captivity. And then 70 years later when they came home from captivity from Babylon and, 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 and they, you would think that it would be drilled into their heads that this is what they need to do. But what, what happened was they were kind of like right back to life as normal as the book of Haggai teaches it. Now, I could have listed many, many, many other passages throughout the Old Testament, but, but these are the two I chose. The, the, the point, friends, is this, this is the way things go. This is, this is the reality. This is the story of the Old Testament. God's people choosing to not obey. Choosing to not submit. And every time we choose to do that, there's pain. Now, this is exactly what James was saying to the people he was writing to. Submit to the Lord. That's, that submission should be vocalized. Jesus is Lord. But it needs to go much further than a stated declaration. It should be lived out in our daily lives. And to help us here understand what that looks like, James takes a few moments to put some practical, some practical application in front of us to show us what submission to the Lord would look like. And in James lists two critical areas that we need to be thinking through here. And, and probably the truth is every one of us struggles with. So, so how do I make submission to God as a, as a daily part of my life? Well, do these two things. Number one, evaluate every decision you make. Before you make a decision, evaluate the decision you're getting ready to make according to the will of God. 
Now, we've talked about this group of people that James was writing to several weeks ago, but I just want to remind you that these were people who were part of the great persecution that rose up against Christians in Acts chapter 8. This was right after the stoning of Stephen in in Acts chapter 7, and and it, it was our introduction to the Pharisee Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul. He was warming up in Acts chapter 7 into Acts chapter 8 to do great damage and great harm to the church, which, by the way, was completely outside of God's will, but Paul had to figure that he was right. So so when Stephen was being stoned, Paul takes responsibility. James Acts chapter 7 verse 58 said that they were, the, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And when you read this, what I want you to see is that phrase, left holding the coats, if the Romans had shown up, and was gonna, somebody was going to have to pay for what happened to Stephen because it was an illegal execution. Saul was saying, charge me. I, I, I'm going to be left holding the coats. I'm the one that's taking responsibility for this. And then Acts chapter 8 just opens up with the word, Saul was there giving approval of his death. And then there's Acts chapter 8, verse 3. Saul began to destroy the church. He was going from house to house in Jerusalem, house to house, dragging people off, men, women, putting them in prison, all for the idea of interrogating them and then doing the same thing to them that that had had just happened to Stephen. Things had become unbearable for Christians in Jerusalem. And as their lives were being ripped out from underneath them, they were forced to flee. They lost their homes, lost their livelihood, lost their jobs. It's like, what are we going to do? Sort of kind of sounds like today, doesn't it? I mean, what are we going to do? These people had lost everything. And so they're running, they're running, and they're working to to probably get to relatives' homes all over Palestine, going to Samaria, going to Antioch, going, and and as they're getting there and getting to these new places, well, they're, they're immediately working to restore things. And who could blame them? In fact, as they get to these new cities and they're setting up, you know, they're getting jobs and renting houses and doing all of this stuff, I mean, we would probably applaud these people. We'd say they've done a good thing. Life didn't get them down. They, they, didn't, they, didn't, they didn't let the circumstances of their life take away their spirit. When faced with an extremely trying situation, they didn't give up. They stepped out. They put one foot in front of another. It's, it's what any of us would want to do in a tragedy. We look to rebuild our lives. But here's the problem. Here's the problem that James is talking about. In stepping out, they, they forgot to ask a really, really, really important decision or question. And the question is, what is the will of God? In other words, what would God have us do in this situation? This is what James writes. Listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, We've just been kicked out of Jerusalem. We've lost everything, so now we're going to this or that city. We're going to spend a year there. We're going to carry on business. We're going to make money. James says, why, why you do not even know what, your li- what will happen tomorrow? What, what is your life? You're, you're a midst that appears for a little while and then vanishes. James chapter 4, verse 15 and 17. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As, as it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. It, it, what James is writing here leads to two critical points. I want to make sure you write them down. The first one is, when you are making a decision, it is a mistake of gargantuan proportions to ignore the will of God. 
Now, I know when these persecuted Christians had their lives ripped out from underneath them, it would, it would have sounded like the right thing to do, to return to life as normal, or at least as normal as that could possibly be. But that, but that moment in the beginning of Acts really represented a chance for a brand new start. Now, remember, remember, God is always working to the good of those who have been called according to his purpose. That's what Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says. In fact, what I want to do, even in this day that we're living right now, I want to read it together. Let, let's read. Paul, Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now make sure you notice the emphasis here. God's will. God's purpose, that is the emphasis. God is working for the good of his will and his purpose. And as we are pointed in God's will and his purpose, then God is working in our lives. People memorize this verse and make it, make it like, like, again, this genie in the bottle thing. God is going to work all things together for my good. And I got a list of what I think the good is. And God says, no, you've missed it. It's not the list of what you think is good. It's the list of what I think is good. I'm calling you to get onto my road, onto my car, onto my train, into my plane, flying that way. And when you do that, I'm working together for your good. Our task as a Christian is to figure out what that, what that thing is, what that will is, and follow it. That includes the times when things are flipped on their head. When things are turned upside down in our lives, Two thoughts. This is often a time for us to make a radical change. Not seek life as usual. However, for most of us, if God called us to do something radical for Him tomorrow, if God picked up a phone and called us, if, God, if your iPhone was suddenly ringing and you looked down and it said, God, for caller ID, and you said, hello, and he said, hey, I want this, this is God and I want you to, and he gave it to you, most of, our, most of us wouldn't be able to do it. We have lives that are filled with responsibilities, and, and one of the biggest responsibilities is debt. I could never leave my job. I could never, I could never move. I could, I, I'm... I'm I could never go from here to there. I could never pick that up because I'm chained to my life because of debt. I've become a slave to the life I have carved out. And because of that, it's not the will of God that's guiding our lives. It's the responsibility of our own personal decisions to be in this place. Now, I don't want you to fly by that really too quickly. I, want, I, want to, I really want that to take some time to generate down inside of you and, and to germinate into something that makes sense. Seven years ago, Brenda and I were in the Dominican Republic. We were there with a mission organization. The, this mission organization was an was a organization that our church in Illinois supported. And this mission organization was about supporting pastors. And so our church had a pastor in Haiti and a pastor in the Dominican Republic. They're on the same island. You know that, right? Just divided by a line. And we, we, were, we were tied up with these people. We had bought land. We, our church in Illinois had bought land. We had built buildings. We were paying the salary. We treated these two churches like they were our own church, like they were our satellite churches. And we, we supported and helped. And, 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 and we, there were feeding programs going in, and, and people in our church had... had 
had um, adopted these kids in these two communities in Haiti and the Dominican, there was a daily feeding program going on. And our church wasn't the only one doing this. There were a bunch of churches around the United States that were involved in the same thing. So every four years, the mission organization got all the local, the local church pastors together in the Dominican and the Haiti, along with the leaders from the churches in the United States, and they, they brought us together where we, would, where we would spend a couple of days in teaching and worship. And I mean, it was really great because we're, sing, we're singing in Spanish and Creole and English. And the, I mean, it's every tribe, every tongue. I mean, it was like way cool there. And then there would be people that would get up, some from the United States, some from Haiti, some from the Dominican. There was teaching and leading and all of these things going on. Now, it was great. But before all of that happened, where we all came together, the, the, the mission organization brought down the people from the United States for a day and a half to begin this conference. And they were introducing us to, to their making sure we knew who all their staff was because there were always some changes going on and there were always new people. And I'll never forget, at this particular time, there were two brand new people on their, on their organizational staff. One was a contractor. He's a contractor from Texas. He had sold his business. He felt like God was telling him to move to Haiti, move to the Dominican. He had sold his contracting business, which was pretty lucrative, sold it all, liquidated it, and he was picking up stakes and moving to Haiti to move into the Dominican. At the same time, and as he was moving, his job was going to be to oversee the construction of all these churches that were going up. At the same time, there's a doctor from Boston who had felt the same thing and was quitting his practice, selling his practice, liquidating everything, and moving to the Dominican so he could set up clinics to help all the Christians in all these little communities. I'm sure a lot of people in their lives thought they were absolutely crazy. Can you hear their parents, their spouses, their kids, their friends? Can you, can you hear it? I mean, you're going where? You want us to do What? The, the, the price, the, the advice that kind of came from people probably at this moment is say, hey, don't do that. How about you just, you know, take two or three weeks or take them, go crazy. Take a month and go down there and hold a clinic or build a building, but don't transfer your life down there. You got it going good. You know, you got the house, you got the vacation. Hey, 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 keep it going right here. But, but here's the deal. These two guys had sought the Lord and they were convinced that this is what God wants wanted them to do. Lord, what would you have me to, to do with my life? And, and when God said, I want you to move to Haiti or to the Dominican, I'm sure their first response was what? But what, what was amazing to me is when they got to the end of this discussion and they really believed like this was the will of God, they did it. It would have been so easy to write a nice check and send it and say, you know, Lord, that's great. I'm willing to sponsor somebody else in this per purpose of this pursuit, but they didn't. They submitted. They followed. I wonder how different your life would be if you truly asked that question, Lord, what do you want me to do? What would happen if we would follow the advice that the priest gave to little Samuel that day? Samuel's in the in 1 Samuel chapter 3, Samuel's hearing this voice, Samuel, Samuel, he keeps running back to the priest because you would expect God to speak to the priest and the priest said, I didn't call you, I didn't call you. Finally, it's like the third time the priest said, he gets it, this is God calling. And he said, next time you hear the voice say, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And that's exactly what happened. The voice came, Samuel, Samuel. This little boy says, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And God reveals what's going to be happening to this little boy and how he's going to be a prophet of God. And 
It's amazing. And the Christians James was writing to fled Jerusalem because of the persecution. There was a great opportunity straight ahead. And it probably did not include life as normal. God probably wanted to use the situation to to move in some radical ways. He probably wanted some of these Christians to change the way they were living. And James' encouragement was exactly that's how they should have responded. Speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. Not business as usual. Radical opportunity for change. But sadly, the response of many that James wrote to was to press ahead. Life is normal. Here's how we lived in Jerusalem. Here's how we're going to live here in Antioch. Same old thing. And James said, before you press on with life as normal, you should ask, Lord, what is it that you want? And as great a mistake as it would be to to, seek, to not seek the Lord's will, it, letter B says that it would be even a greater mistake to boast and brag about not following the Lord's will. <laughs> James says, as it is, you boast and brag, and that boasting is evil. Instead of seeking the Lord's will about their new lives and their new cities, they chose, chose just to go ahead with life as normal. And, and then when everything started working out, I got a new job and I got a new house and, you know, I got the new car and everything's moving down the road. Then they start boasting about, it. hey, look, look, look at me. Look what's going on. I mean, I'm not held back by any of this stuff. There's a prideful arrogance in these people about all they had accomplished in spite, of their, in spite of their horrible circumstance. But what I find interesting here is that instead of praising them, James rebukes them. The day is coming when we are going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give account. Now, I've said this before. I want to say it again. There, there, are, there, there will be two different judgments, very different. One we read about in Revelation chapter 20. It's called the Great White Throne Judgment. This is that place where, I mean, the books are open, it's the Lamb's book of life, and the names that are not written there are the names of the people that are going to hell. The great white throne judgment is a judgment of damnation, and the people of of the world that are going to stand before this throne are going to give an account of their lives, and God is going to tell them why why they'll be forever separated from Him in that unthinkable place. Now, the other judgment is called the Bema Seat Judgment. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. This is not, this is not a judgment of damnation. This is a judgment of, of reward. It's a judgment of your work as a Christian. God is going to judge the things that you did in your life. And what he's what the, the picture here is a, is, a, is a big blast furnace, a refiner's fire, like a pizza oven with a, with a conveyor belt going through the middle of it. And God's going to take the work of your life and he's going to put it on this end of, of that refiner's fire, and then it's going to go through. And at the end, everything that it was done according to God's will and according to His purpose, everything that was righteous and how it was done is going to come out unscathed. And a whole bunch of stuff is going to get burned up because it wasn't done for that reason. Now, if you read this passage, this is not about whether people are going to heaven or hell. If everything got burned up in this judgment, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 
Three, that we will like escape through the flames, that we're, we're still saved because we are saved by grace. But listen, here's the deal. I don't want to get to this point and have my life put on the conveyor belt and have it come out the other end just to be nothing more than a bunch of cinders all burned up. What I, what I want my life to be is something that is done for, for God, for His will, for His purpose, for His glory. And so, so that when it comes out on this end, there will be something there that will give God blessing because I live for Him. And if that's going to happen, if there's going to be something at the other end, it means it needs to be things that were done according to His will and His purpose. If you're making decisions for your life and not including the Lord's will in the process, well, you're making a horrible mistake. And that's, what, that's why James puts this tag at the very end. It may seem really odd and it may seem out of place, but in James chapter 4, verse 17, he says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it is a sin. When, when you come to this place in your life and you know what God wants you to do and you choose to be someplace else, it's a sin. So Lord, what is your will? And you... You firmly believe that God wants you to do this, and you say, I really don't want to do that. When you know where you ought to be, and you know what you ought to be doing, and you're choosing to be elsewhere, sin. So before you make any life decision, friends, you should be asking God, what is it that you want me to do? And then you should simply do it. How do you know you're submitting to God? You you take every decision you make and you run it by the Lord's will. And then you do a second thing. You evaluate every relationship you keep. Every relationship you keep needs to be evaluated according to the Lord's will. Every decision I make, every relationship I keep. Matthew 22, an expert of the law came and asked Jesus a really important question. What's the greatest commandment? You, you remember Jesus, Jesus didn't even blink. He just speaks. It's an interesting answer. Matthew chapter 22, 37, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, you do these two things, all the other laws in the Old Testament, all 611 of the other laws are meant to interpret these two. Love God, love others. Jesus laid out a priority with a simple response. And what I find interesting here is that there's, you're not in the equation. Except you should love your neighbor as you would tend to want to love yourself. What we, what we tend to do is to put ourselves up and take care of ourselves and provide for ourselves. And if there's anything left over, it could maybe go for God or good, go for other people. God says, no, lay that down. You deny yourself. You take up your cross, Matthew 16, and you love God and you love others. The way that you would want to lift yourself up, you've denied yourself and you're loving God and loving others. And James follows suit here in chapter 4 and 5 as he talks about the topic of Submission. This is our life. He's, talk, he's talking to a bunch of people, and he says, he, 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 and he's speaking to rich people. And he says their wealth is basically rotting away. It's that refiner's fire thing. It's going to all burn up. Why? Because of the way that they have treated money and other people. Here's what James says, chapter 5. As you've hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, 
The wages you failed to pay the workmen who moved your fields or who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have, you have fat, fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered innocent men who were not opposing you. First, these people hoarded wealth. They never asked, Lord, what would you want me to do with this? Their first thought was me. Not God, not others, me. They just made a pile of money and they set it aside for themselves. In the process, they treated everybody else around them poorly. They failed to pay the workers who had labored for them. And with the extra money, they just added to their lifestyles. It's self-indulgent, self-indulgent, self-indulgent. And in the end, it all came back to bite them. Now, I understand the first reaction from a lot of us is, I, I'm not rich, so this doesn't apply to me. Wrong. I'm just telling you, friends, if you live in the United States, you're rich. You're among the richest people on the planet. In fact, right now, without even thinking, there are five billion people on the planet who would trade places with you in a second. They wouldn't even have to think about it. So before we take any steps, we should be saying, is this really what God wants? Is the way I'm living with the resource that is in my hand what God would have me to do? What am I doing in relationship with other people around me? Are you using this resource to advance yourself or to advance the kingdom of God? And before we take any steps, James says, we should be asking the question, Lord, what do you want, what do you want me to do with this money? Lord, how do you want me to treat these people that I'm looking at? Lord, what steps do I need to take here to help advance your kingdom? James is writing about people who failed to seek God. They failed to ask what His will was, and they failed to recognize that God would want them to treat other people around them differently. And because of that, they failed to submit. Now listen, friends. God has been really deliberate in speaking to us about priorities and responsibilities. Our lives here on earth need to be lived in submission to Him, and in submission to His priorities and our responsibility towards those priorities. God, the, the truth is God has made His expectations known. And here's the question, what are you doing with it? How are you doing with it? Truthfully, many of us might have to say not so well. But what's sad is that we find excuses here. Excuses about maybe why we're not doing what we ought to do. In the end, there's really no acceptable excuses. The people of God are people of submission to God's will. Before they step out, they're asking, Lord, what is your will? Lord, how do you want me to respond to these relationships? Would you bow your heads? I'm just saying, friends, it's maybe a really good day. It's kind of crazy to me that these words were picked out months and months and months ago, this passage of Scripture for today. 
We're living in a day maybe where we ought to be taking account. And God would want you to do that, to take account. So with eyes towards nobody but yourself, how are you doing? Is God honored? Is God glorified in your life? Have you submitted? Lord, help us. Help us to hear your word. Help us to hear your call. Help us to be responsible and faithful. And that's our prayer in the name of Jesus. And God's people said,